Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Cozy Room by Arthur Macon, or Macken. Uh, first published in a magazine called TP's Weekly, May 1908. I am vaguely familiar, or was familiar at one point with TP's Weekly. I believe it was, uh, TP was a cartoonist, um, and uh, he had his own magazine that he, he filled out, and then he also filled it with uh, um, other people's stories that I guess were friends of his. Kind of a weird kind of magazine, but um, uh, I don't have the original issue. But we're taking this from a, a later publication, and it's classified in a section called Terror, which is interesting. This is a story I think that everybody should read. Um, it's only 16 minutes to read, but since we only have half an hour here, maybe um, you want to download the PDF we've got up on the website and have a look at it. But if you don't, or if you have, and you've come back a little later, Eric, will you do a summary for us? Sure. Um, I agree with you, Jesse. It is a story that's well worth reading. And part of the reason that it's worth reading is that the narrative position is sort of odd. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to do is read the first half page to give a sense sure. of this and then say what happens thereafter. So it's called The Cozy Room by Arthur Macon or Macken or however we decide to pronounce it. And he found to his astonishment that he came to the appointed place with a sense of profound relief. It was true that the window was somewhat high up in the wall and that in case of fire, it might be difficult for many reasons to get out of that way. Uh, it was barred like the basement windows that one sees now and then in London houses. But as for the rest, it was an extremely snug room. There was a gay flowering paper on the walls, a hanging bookshelf. His stomach sickened for an instant. A little table under the window with a board and checkers on it, two or three good pictures, religious and ordinary. And the man who looked after him was arranging the tea things on the table in the middle of the room. And there was a wicker chair by a bright fire. It was a thoroughly pleasant room, snug, you would call it. And thank God it was all over anyhow, dot, dot, dot. And then there's a break. Mm-hmm. So the way this story begins, it begins with and. Mm-hmm. So if it were a first person narration, one would think ah, we're, we're stuck in the mind. We're coming through the mind of the main character as a third person narration. And he found to his astonishment, it seems to be third person limited. That is, um, we have a narrator who's a third person narrator, but limits himself only to the viewpoint of this character. But in fact, we will discover as we go through the novel, the story, occasionally we learn things from this narrator that the character who is usually our viewpoint clearly would not know. Mm-hmm. 
So there is in a kind of subterranean way that might miss one might miss in a casual reading a tension between what the main character thinks and what the storyteller, what the omniscient voice knows. That's important because the story is the story of detection. Mm -hmm. Uh, It begins with and the word and occurs again and again in what I just read. The story is called the cozy room. The word snug appears in this very first section. And there are all kinds of questions raised that we don't understand. Uh, Why did his stomach sicken when he saw a hanging bookshelf, for example? Uh, It turns out that it had been a horrible time for the last three months up to an hour ago. That's the next line. Mm -hmm. What has been a horrible time? We come to learn that our main character has killed a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's killed a man for a reason that's never made clear. First of all, there was the trouble all over in a minute that was and couldn't be helped, though it was a pity. uh, And the girl wasn't worth it. Uh, So apparently... He did something to save a girl. He follows this guy, Joe, out of a bar. People had seen his gun. And then he flees his town uh, so that no one will find him as the murderer. He goes to London. And if we remember what we've just read, um, what we get is a description of the feelings this fellow has over a three-month period when he is trying not to be recognized and picked up by the cops, uh, the police, um, the bobbies. Um, but all, and he gets, he gets weirder and weirder. He winds up walking in the rented room that he, um, occupies muttering. Yep. That's okay. This is good. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) He's doing everything he can to reassure himself that in the crowded teeming London, no one will in fact find him that eventually he'll be able to relax. And when he gets to the point of being able to relax, to stop looking over his shoulder, to stop thinking that people are spotting him around the corner, uh, he decides, you know, I can get out of this cage of my fate. Uh, The phrase literally is the cage of his fate because it's in third person, um, which might resonate with the notion of the cozy room. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, in fact, As he thinks, okay, you know what? I'll move to this other section of London. I'll get a job. No one will recognize me. I don't have the beard. Um, There was outside the little newspaper shop opposite, uh, there was a bill of the evening paper. New clue in let him murder mystery. Then another paragraph break. The moment came at last. He never knew the exact means by which he was hunted down. As a matter of fact, and now you see he never knew it, but we're going to find it. So there is this omniscient narrator behind it all. As a matter of fact, a woman who knew him well happened to be standing outside Darnley Station on the excursion day morning. And she had recognized him in spite of his beardless chin. That is when he got on the train to leave the town in which he had um, committed the murder. And then at the other end, his landlady on her way upstairs had heard his mutterings and gabblings Though the voice was low, she was interested and curious and a little frightened and wondered if her lodger might be dangerous. And naturally, she talked to her friends. 
So the story trickled down to the ears of the police and the police asked about the date of the lodger's arrival. And there you were. And there was our nameless friend drinking a good hot cup of tea and polishing off the bacon and eggs with rare appetite in the cozy room with the cheerful paper. Otherwise, the condemned cell. Mm -hmm. So now we finally find out that the cage of his fate has led to another cage and he likes it because it's so much better to know that he's going to die uh, than to be constantly troubled by these fears that some copper will put his hand, heavy hand on his shoulder as he's walking along the streets. So it's a story not about the right or wrongness of the murder. We have no idea why he murdered. Um, it's about the relationship between a sense of guilt or terror and the comparative relief, which he only had an hour ago, um, when you know that it's going to be over. Um, I would point out that there is, in addition to this emotional uh, material, a lot of other quite subtle um, detail that helps to build what all of this is about. But you asked for a summary, so I'll stop there. <laughs> I uh, I think you did a very nice job with that. The um, story is hard to summarize because you are a detective following what the story is going on. I mean, your job at, to, when you're reading it is trying to figure out what's going on. There's a lot of word repetition. There's a lot of pronouns like it had been a horrible time. What is it? <laughs> uh, it was a pity. What is it? <laughs> It, uh, the girl wasn't worth it. What is it? We don't know. And then uh, eventually we sort of figure out, we put together that, oh, this guy, our nameless friend, as the narrator puts it at the end, um, has murdered someone. And as he's murdered someone, he's, he's on the run, he's afraid, he's feeling guilty, he's more, more than feeling guilty, he's feeling... Um, that he's going to be caught at any moment. He's feeling sick. He's, he's at one point he's suicidal. And what I love about this story is that it's very effective. When you read it, you don't know what's going on, but you get enough clues so that it sort of gradually dawns upon you. So okay, I'm thinking okay that oh I see. And then with the final line, right? Otherwise, the condemned cell, and that's capitalized, condemned and cell. So this is a special room. And if we go back to the title, the cozy room, <laughs> well, that's one way of putting it. What's another way of putting it? The small cell, right? Um, cozy is actually a good word for it if you look at how it's described, right? There's, there's a, yeah, it's true there's bars on the windows, but there's nice paper on the walls. There's a wicker chair by the fire. There's somebody looking after him, putting out his tea things. And to me, the very first thing that I was thinking when I was reading this is like, why is it a man? That's not uh, that's not that usual that a man is taking care of another man. Um, and and also, uh, like, is he sick? What's wrong with him? And he says when he came to the appointed place, right? Like, oh, he's been told about this, and somehow he's some he's going somewhere. And well, although it's it seems all very nice, there's that one moment in the opening paragraphs where after he sees one of the uh, 
nice appointments in the little room, you know, besides the checkers on the table and the religious pictures and the non-religious pictures. He sees the bookshelf and it upsets him. And I, I did, when I first read it, I didn't know why he was upset. I was like, oh, he doesn't like books? <laughs> and then, of course, when we get to the final paragraph, and there you were. It starts, uh, it, uh, these last couple of sentences start with Anne, just like uh, the opening, right? And there you were. And there was our nameless friend drinking a good hot cup of tea and polishing off the bacon and eggs with rare appetite. And my student, when I showed him this story and we're reading it, he said, oh, that's his last meal, right? That's why he's getting his uh, bacon and eggs for dinner or whatever. With a rare appetite. Uh, yeah, I guess it would be a rare appetite. In the cozy room with the cheerful paper, otherwise the condemned cell. When we go back and, and look at that opening again, it's entirely obvious why he feels sick and suddenly. There was a gay flowering paper on the walls, a hanging bookshelf. His stomach sickened for an instant. A little table under the window, and it goes on and on to describe the room. Although, who's describing it is, it's almost like a third-person point of view from the condemned man's point of view. And, and the way he's describing it, the paper is gay, the room is cozy, or it's snug. He says snug twice, right? Oh, that's such brilliant writing because he's interpreting what's there for us, but he's also showing us what's actually there. The reason they have the bright wallpaper and the, and the uh, uh, you know, the nice room and the religious pictures and the non-religious pictures is because they got to keep these guys calm for what's to come. And the form of execution is told to us in the opening by the description of the bookshelf. It's not a bookshelf freestanding from the floor. It's a hanging bookshelf. That's like, oh, that, now I get it, right? And once you see it that way, once you start reading this story with the psychology in mind, and it, it totally teaches you to do that, I think, uh, you start seeing the, the masterfulness of how we are being manipulated, not in a negative way, but in a positive way, how we are being manipulated into, into a situation like he's in, not, not knowing what he, he's done to deserve it, we don't know, but we do empathize with his feelings. And when he does this self-talk in the middle, it's actually the same kind of thing that the, the warden and the, the jailers are doing at his prison. They're trying to keep him calm and keep him not upset and not freaked out. And maybe it, everything will be all right. There's the religious pictures on the wall. Oh, it's a nice fire. I quite like this room. Um, when he's alone in his room walking back and forth after he's been traumatized by some incident at a local pub, he says things like this. He read the police, uh, this is on page 38 of our version, he read that the police held a clue to the Letta murder mystery, and he trembled to his lodging, lodgings and locked himself in and moaned in his agony. So this is, again, another cozy room, right? And then found himself chattering words and phrases at random, without meaning or relevance. Actually, they have meaning and relevance, of course. Strings of gibbering words. All right, all right, all right. Yes, 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 yes. There, 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 there. Well, 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 right? All positive words. 
And I was thinking, well, maybe there, there, there is not positive. But when I was a little kid, you know, you skin your knee or whatever, and your mom runs over and says, oh, there, 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 dear. <laughs> what does it even mean? All right, all right, all right. Everything's all right. Yes, yes, it's okay. There, there, there. Well, well, well. Later on, he says almost the exact same thing. Another incident here. He dared not go into the light. He feared the shadows and went trembling to his room, again, his cozy room, and shuddered there as the hours of the night went by, shuddered and gabbled to himself his infernal rosary. All right, all right, all right. Splendid, splendid. That's the way, that's the way, that's the way. Yes, yes, yes. First rate, first rate, first rate. He gabbled in a low mutter to keep from howling like a wild beast. Wow, so clever. It leaves us sort of in suspense right to the end. That's kind of a, a pun I accidentally made. But <laughs> it also made me think, because of he's got this cozy room at the beginning, and we see that cozy room at the end, and then he's in a couple of uh, different lodgings uh, on while he's on the run. Um, it made me think something else, that he's going to be even happier than he is now in his next room, for it is going to be even snugger. <laughs> his next room being his coffin. Oh, indeed, powerful, powerful, good writing. I, I like your notion that the story teaches us to read it psychologically. Um, one of the things that makes Mackin's writing so good is that we can read different layers in it. The last paragraph begins, so the story trickled down to the ears of the police, and the police asked mm -hmm. about the date of the uh, lodger's arrival, and there you were, mm -hmm. and there was our nameless friend drinking a good hot cup of tea, and polishing off the bacon and eggs with rare appetite in the cozy room with a cheerful paper, otherwise the condemned cell. So the paragraph begins, the story trickled down to the ears of the police as the story is now trickling down to us, mm. right? We are more and more coming to gather what really happened in the condemned man's mind and what really happened in the society at large. And Mackin is priming us to rethink this and understand different sources of knowledge and what knowledge may mean. Uh, the absence of knowledge may give terror. The access of knowledge, in fact, may give relief, which is a word that appears in the very opening. It gives relief even though the knowledge is fatal. Mm -hmm. That last paragraph that I just read has the word and in it repeatedly, as did the opening. Mm -hmm. The notion mm -hmm. that both what is within us and without us are somehow connected, that we can only feel calm when we have managed to bring them into accord with each other is surprisingly like uh, the Freudian notion of coming to have some kind of ego integration mm -hmm. between the superego and the, the id. The, I, I raise Freud here not only because we're at a period when he, Freud, too, is talking about the importance of putting together the external and the internal, um, but because the nature of woman is important here as well. The crime, if we can speculate, 
mm-hmm. is one in which at a bar, this fellow named Joe mm-hmm. was um, rude to some girl. Now, we don't know whether our character um, fancied the girl, whether uh, or he was just feeling chivalrous in his cups. But in fact, the more Joe was ungentlemanly, the more our character said out loud that he shouldn't do this. Right. This is um, something that was quite wrong, um, that if he keep the, kept this up, he would be outing dues or whatever that means. I've not been able to find that. But apparently he would be on the outs. It would be outre. Right. It would be something that one cannot do. And so he follows Joe to the river and kills him. He kills him. But the girl was not worth it. It says in the beginning. Now, in fact, when we come to understand how the story got to the ears of the police, there was a woman on the railroad platform who saw him leave and recognized him, even though he had uh, shaved his beard. And his landlady lady got in London, got suspicious because of his mutterings. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. single part of this story that changes this man's life has to do with the way in which he interacts with women. Mm. And all of the women, in fact, survive. He is about to not survive. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it is at that moment when he gets tea served, as you said, quite unusually, one would think for some reasons, uh, by a man. But in fact, he has tea many times in this story. Mm-hmm. And we hear tea being poured many times in this story. And I don't know what how the words worked by default in England in 1908 when this was first published or how the words work nowadays in Canada where you are. Mm-hmm. But I grew up knowing that in order to keep the tea hot, you put a a piece of cloth over it that was shaped to fit the teapot snugly, (laughs) and it was called a cozy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the cozy room that our main character winds up in can be the room in which he gets that last cup of tea. (laughs) It's the cozy room where everything has been kept snug. I looked for um, the etymology of these words, and it turns out that snug goes back quite a ways, and it means, it means, first, it comes out in the 16th century as a nautical term. It means to make the ship tight so that it will withstand weather. Mm. And we still have that notion of the tightness and the nearness when we talk about somebody snugging, you know, he snugged the car into position. Exactly. When people snuggle, they're getting tighter together. And if you look up the word cozy, which also has an uncertain origin, the very first thing we're told is that it means snug and warm, just like tea. Mm. You know, so women provide up a way to snuggle, to feel warm. They, in fact, may give you a home landlady. They may give you a reason to to be heroic, uh, but the girl wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of underlying psychology here about this fellow who has enough money to live. He, he took a bun- bunch of notes with him when he left um, 
let him so that he would be able to survive for at least a month. So he had ready access to a bunch of money. Um, he's used to the idea of having other people serve him, of standing people drinks at the bar. Um, and yet to have something in his life that matters, um, it seems to always have to do with women. And he is not able really to connect with them. The best he can do is stay snug, but he can't snuggle with a woman. (laughs) He can kill someone to protect a woman. He can put himself in a woman's hands as he does with his landlady. Um, But if he's really going to get some nice tea, (laughs) it has to come from a man. This is a guy who never really made it. (laughs) He always wanted, I think. To have a cozy room, a place where his lovely woman, wife, would come in the evening and say, welcome, darling. May I give you a nice cuppa and pour him some hot tea after taking the cozy off the pot? Um, It's a story of failure. And he finally gets as close to that success as he can when he is condemned. Now, what will happen the next day when he's hanged? Well, that's why he shudders in looking at the bookshelf. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, he's come as close to that sense of domestic warmth and protection as he ever does in his entire life, as far as we can tell from what the omniscient narrator lets us see through his mind. I I originally, when I first read the story, I I was wondering what's going to happen. What's going to happen? What's going on? And um, and I, I told you my my kind of joke about how the next room he's going to be is going to be even snugger, you know, his coffin. <laughs> um, but actually, one of the theories I had um, about halfway through the first time I read this story was that um, it, it, the opening is he was in hell um, because. Uh, as you are being taught, you know, not to trust certain words and just certain descriptions of, of things, and obviously the way he, he relates to reality is is kind of paranoid and and also delusional, right, in de- describing things. But also, the reality is trying to, to, push him in the right direction. You might say, um, you know, you're gonna, you know. You're going to be in hell. You're going to be on fire for a long time. Well, at least it's cozy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and the, I think the, where I got that is actually on page 39. I, he has this nightmare. Um, and I want to read this. He says, or the story says, he had awakened in the past from such nightmares. Now and again, as most men suffer, they were terrible so terrible that he remembered two or three of them had oppressed him years before, but they were pure delight to what he now endured, not injured, but writhed under as a worm, twisting amid red burning coals. And and thinking about how, you know, you have to be warm, right, to be snug and cozy, and he's got that wicker chair that he can sit in, that whole room's his, right? That whole so, room, comes. and and in his his flight to London, um, the first thing he does is find lodgings, and he and he gets a nice room, and then he it's a perfectly fine room, but the problem is he can't stay there. He has to go out. He has to walk the lonely streets of the city, and and oh no, the, not the lonely streets. It has to be the busy streets, 
And no matter where he goes, he's unsettled and upset. And even in his cozy lodgings in London, he can't get relief. Now, being captured, you know, the guilt is a, a way, the fear, more importantly, of being captured, the fear of what that hand on the shoulder, it's all gone, and he can enjoy his cozy room. What a great, what a great story for just showing the psychology of a, of a murderer. Amazing. I agree with that, Jesse. I agree with your reading, maybe even more than you might have anticipated, because on the first reading, I can report, I too thought that the cozy room might be a euphemism for coffin, that this was being narrated from within rather than beyond the grave. Uh, but of course, an omniscient narrator is able to do that, even coming in through the mind of um, the, the dead man. A, a reading that was reinforced for me by precisely the paragraph that you read, ending with the worm twisting amid red mm. burning coals. But that reading was only a possible one for me on the first reading. Mm. So what I also want to praise in Mackin's work and reinforce in your discussion of it is that not only does the story teach us how to work our way through the psychology, but it impels us, especially with all of these ands, like the and with which the story opens, to go through it again. Mm -hmm. You get to condemn cell and we're back into the beginning of the story. We can read the story again. We can have a deeper understanding of the psychology now that we know what was really going on. But then having come to the end when we have the quick exposition of how the police found out the details, you know, one woman this, one woman that, and so on, mm -hmm. then we can go back again and ask, wait a minute, was any of this actually motivated? I mean, those were details about what happens in the world, but they don't give us any of the details about what motivated the man. And at that point, on a third reading or a fourth reading, it suddenly occurred to me that this is a proto-existentialist text, mm. that this has a lot in common with Merceau, right? Um, that, you know, when, when he kills that Arab on the beach, um, the stranger in Camus, the stranger, just because he can do it. And then we get the entire novel through his viewpoint as he tries to remember, you know, why he did things and whether it matters that you do things. I mean, we're here with an existential character. We don't know why he killed that, that man, some random Joe. Certainly the girl wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, existence will finally, finally make any sense that it can make when you give yourself up to the notion that we are all condemned. Mm -hmm. So the story teaches us, sends us back, reteaches us, sends us back, and maybe even reteaches us. What a rich, rich experience of reading, even though it appears to be, and it's mislabeled in that sense, just a tale of terror. Mm -hmm. 
there is here, I think, always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.